Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally, not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. You're listening to part two of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum with Dr. Hughes. We pick up right now where we left off last week. Well, these are left wing ideologues who are making these sorts of decisions. And yes, I agree 100%. And this is one sixth of the private sector economy, the healthcare system is. And when you think about it, Ezekiel Emanuel, Donald Berwick, two of the major authors of the bill, have based Obamacare on really the stale, flawed, uh, socialized medicine model of Great Britain. And the true tragedy is we can see what's going on in Great Britain right now. My, my son is an orthopedic spine surgeon in, in New York City at the hospital for special surgery. And about a year and a half ago, he received a frantic call from the son of a robust 80-plus-year-old gentleman he, who was on a cruise with his wife, fell and uh, injured his neck, was taken to a hospital in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, they did an x-ray of his neck, and he had an unstable hangman uh, fracture of the neck. And the next thing the wife and uh, this uh, fellow's father knew, the physician came in and told him, we're going to start an IV, we're going to put in a Foley catheter, you're never going to get out of this bed, you have a neck fracture, and you're too old to fix. So fortunately, they were able to airlift him out because the family could afford it, and he was brought the States and the hospital for special surgery. His neck fracture was fixed, and six weeks later he was back to walking Central Park and ballroom dancing and going into work three days a week. Uh, is this the system upon which we wish to uh, pitch over our healthcare system, which has been really the model for the rest of the world? Uh, it's, it's a true tragedy. Well, you know, our healthcare system has been the subject of repeated attacks with lies and misinformation by the left for decades. Uh, we keep on hearing the constant thing like our infant mortality rate is, is the worst in the world and all of these kind of things that we as physicians know are not true. Uh, we know that why infant, we know that certain things go into infant mortality figures which give us ranking uh, unfairly so. Uh, it's the way other companies, other pardon me, other countries measure or call infants. Uh, sometimes in some of these developing countries, an infant is not even considered born unless they survive a first day or two. So this changes all those statistics, and all the. But the fact is, you and I both know that from all over the world, people with money come here when they can't get care elsewhere. That says everything that I need to know about the quality of American medicine. 
Well, that's true. And even in Great Britain, where they're taxed tremendously, something like 75% of people who make over $70,000 a year are now buying private health care insurance. And the medical tourism of people leaving Great Britain per year is estimated to be somewhere around $250 million. So uh, in Great Britain, people are leaving their country to get uh, more sophisticated care elsewhere. And again, the Wall Street Journal some time ago had a very fascinating article about the Lockerbie bomber. If you remember, he was released from Scotland because he was, quote, terminally ill with metastatic prostate cancer, and he was taken to Libya, and he lived like three and a half years longer. And the Wall Street Journal had an investigative reporter who who wanted to figure out why, because people thought it was a sham that he was dismissed from from, uh, Scotland. And lo and behold, he tracked down the physician who had been caring for him, and the reason he was released and deemed terminal was because in Scotland, he really was terminal because they didn't use the drug called Taxotere for metastatic prostate cancer, which prolongs life and increases quality of life and decreases pain. And when he went to Libya, he got modern prostate cancer treatment and lived for three and a half more years. So the upshot of the Wall Street Journal was that maybe the Brits deserve the same sort of compassionate care that this uh, terrorist received. Uh, it's, it's pretty pathetic. Well, you know, when you compare um, survival and outcome rates with any of the major diseases, uh, the statistics are overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly in favor uh, of our medical system here in this country. Cancer survival rates, the time between diagnosis and treatment for diabetes, for fractures, for all kinds of things is so much better here. And, you know, I... One of the things that we're so concerned about here is choice. And I think that uh, choice is going to go away. And when we're talking about what's going to happen in the future, to me, that's one of the main, one of the main problems that, we're, that patients are going to face here is they're not going to have what they're used to now, which is just an array of choices uh, to take care of their medical needs. Well, I totally agree. We're already seeing that in the exchanges, you know, the the big promise, one of the big uh, promises slash lies of Obamacare, was that it was going that these exchanges were going to actually increase competition. Uh, but as we have seen now, there are 16 states that have three or less insurance products to offer. And North Carolina has has had like an 83 percent drop in the choices on the. Uh, on the exchanges in terms of health insurance. And I think this is an excellent time to kind of re-educate our listeners that do not think that you are getting a private health insurance product on the exchanges. You are getting a government franchise product from the exchanges that's subsidized with your, uh, with your tax dollars in two ways. One is the subsidy that is given to uh, the enrollee and the latest statistics were about 75% plus of enrollees were eligible for some sort of subsidy, which means you're in my tax dollars. But also, there's the bailout for the insurance companies if they have sustained losses. And that was in, like, Section 1341 and 1342 of Obamacare, you know, that law that nobody read before they uh, voted for it. And in those two sections... The insurance companies, if they experience a loss, I think it's like 108% over the cost of the policy, then you and I kick in up to 80% 
uh, reimbursement to those insurance companies, and that's, of course, how uh, the administration got the insurance companies on board. They saw this huge infusion of dollars and almost a, a fail-safe mechanism if, indeed, the cost uh, outstripped what they were bringing in from their policies. So these are not private insurance products. These are government franchise products, and 80% of those products are HMOs, which are inferior to what people already had and more expensive. The HMO model has been tried uh, in the past. We know from experience that that is always much, much less quality and much, much less choice when it comes to medical care. The, the HMOs, yes. And now, of course, they have resurrected the Accountable Care Organizations, or ACOs, and these have been tried before as well. These are even worse than HMOs because there are perverse economic incentives built into the, the Accountable Care Organizations. Sometimes they're called medical homes or hospital-run uh, insurance systems. Uh, but in essence, it rewards withholding of care uh, or, quote, cost savings. And always they're talking about quality, not cost, uh, but it all boils down to the same thing. Again, it is uh, puts the physician into a moral and ethical dilemma because the more care that you render, uh, the more potential you have for taking home less money at the end of the year. The little rewards for, quote, saving money for the system. Well, that was certainly the experience, even with HMOs, where you have a gatekeeper, where the gatekeeper was paid a fixed amount of money per month for each patient he enrolled, but he had to pay for specialty care out of his own pocket. So naturally, if you had a patient who needed some kind of specialty care, most of these primary care physicians would try to do as much as they could themselves to avoid having to take money out of their own pocket. And that that is really comes back to what you've said over and over, which is so true, that this law puts physicians in that moral and ethical dilemma where you really, there is no win. There is no win. You just cannot win. And that's why physicians are leaving practice or trying to find anything that they can do as an alternative uh, to participating uh, in government medicine. And it's difficult for many physicians, especially if they're newly in practice and they have horrendous debt that they've incurred in their education, to, quote, just say no. Uh, and I don't know if our listeners really understand how it is that third-party contracts came into being. And what do I mean by that? I mean the PPO. Let's just take a simple model like the preferred provider organization that, like Blue Cross Blue Shield, Aetna, all of the major insurance companies have. The preferred provider organization is made up of an insurance company who goes to an employer that has X amount of employees. Let's say for discussion purposes, 15,000 employers in a doctor's area, uh, employees. So they go to the insurance company and they say to the employer who's going to be purchasing insurance for his employees or her employees, uh, we can... Uh, service your insurance needs, your health insurance needs for these employees for X amount of dollars. And so the insurance companies bid against one another for that employer to go with them for that particular year. So once that insurance company has those 15,000 insured, they go around to the doctors and they say, doctor, we have X business, all of their employees. 
if you want access to those employees in your practice, you need to agree to give us a 20% discount on your usual and customary fee. And that's what the preferred provider organization is. And once you realize that, you can realize that uh, it's all well and good to say just say no, but if you're going to lose access to 15,000 patients in your community, what happens? Well, what has happened in the past is that it's one of the escalators of the cost in healthcare. If you're going to offer a 20% discount to a certain portion of your patients, you either can shift that care to other patients or you can raise your fees so that that 20% discount is actually what your, what your usual and customary used to be. Now, is this a pretty site? No, it's not a pretty site. It's what needed reform, and you and I both know that this needed reform. Uh, but it's been a very difficult task as long as the employer purchases insurance for the employee. So one of our, our recommendations, myself and other activists, is that we separate the employer and the employee from the purchase of insurance. And once we start doing that, the insurance companies are going to have to start offering uh, individually held portable insurance. But we can't do that unless something happens with Obamacare. We have to take a quick commercial break here on Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. More with Dr. Hughes right after this. Well, you know, there are uh, lots of different proposals and, uh, that we can make. Because I think the best, the best people to really design these systems are the physicians who themselves, who do work with patients on a regular basis. Uh, and I think you've mentioned one of the key points, and that is insurance policies should belong to the person insured, not to some third party. Uh, when you... Uh, have a homeowner's policy, uh, you own the policy. So you can go to a variety of different sources uh, and get bids on the coverage you want, tailor the coverage you want to what you, to what you feel you need, and then pay for it based upon who gives you the best deal or who's the most reliable company. So to me, separating uh, ownership of an insurance policy from a third party and giving it to the person insured is certainly something that is ex extremely important to do. Uh, this can easily be done by shifting to a defined contribution uh, that allows the employer, then, the employee then, to purchase their own uh, health care insurance and uh, still allows the employer to add that as a benefit for the employee. I think it's crucially important if we have the opportunity to reform our system. Right. So if we separate out that the, the ownership of an insurance policy is the insured himself, that will go a long way toward uh, making the system work better. Another thing, as I'm sure you know, are health care savings accounts. I think that is one of the most important ways that we could reform the system because what that does is it makes people responsible for their own medical care. Absolutely. And actually, one of the recommendations in terms of trying to weather the storm uh, to see if we can flip the Senate in 2014 and if we can to put off doing anything radical regarding Obamacare till the 2016 election is to realize that a health savings account plus a catastrophic indemnity insurance policy 
uh, meaning the insurance policy only kicks in if you have a major unanticipated medical or surgical problem, plus the Obamacare fine is actually less money out of pocket per year for most individuals than buying one of the extremely expensive with high deductible, uh, poor choice and limited network policies that you get on the exchanges. So a health savings account plus the catastrophic insurance uh, plus the fine, again, uh, if we can hold off until uh, 2016, uh, may be a better option for individuals. What you've really described is how we deal with all of our other insurances. And, and, and this is really an important point, and I want to talk about it more and clarify it. Uh, when you buy an automobile insurance policy, that an automobile insurance policy covers you for whatever you need, your, your uh, you know, accidents, your, your health uh, risk, your other people, whatever. And you define for, between you and your insurance company exactly what you want uh, to be covered. Now, these insurance policies do not cover changing your oil and your oil filter. They do not cover changing your wiper blades or washing your car. They are there for defects that occur, accidents or whatever, that require more money to be laid out. So the low-level stuff, that the routine maintenance stuff, comes out of your own pocket. And then, of course, if you have a, a significant wet net worth, you may well have an umbrella policy for the catastrophic events which can occur. So you have really a three-tiered system. You pay out of your pocket uh, for the minor stuff and the routine. You have an insurance policy that takes care of most of everything else. And if things really, really get bad, your umbrella kicks in. And that's how we buy every single kind of insurance except for medical insurance. And that's where the HSA uh, health savings account model with the umbrella policy comes into play because that really would then allow us to have a system for our health care, which is no different than any of the other insurances that we buy. And this, of course, would be a huge expansion in choice because if you have a health savings account, it doesn't matter what physician you go to. You have free access to any physician. You're not limited to a PPO or an HMO panel, uh, which I think people who have gone on the exchanges are finding that their choices are limited. I have a 52-year-old uh, patient who came in the other day, and she said, uh, well, I lost my insurance because of Obamacare, and I spent three days on the exchange. I finally picked out a policy. I thought I understood it. I, a week later, I got a letter in the mail with a card, and that was my insurance card, and it had a doctor's name on it. She said, I thought, I wonder what in the world is this? Then she realized she was in an HMO. So she looked up the doctor, whose name she didn't recognize, and his office was 45 minutes from her town. And she looked at the network, and there wasn't a single doctor on it that she recognized, nor was the hospital that they normally use as a family on it. So now she's lost in Obamacare, in the Obamacare vortex, I call it, because the back end of the federal exchanges, healthcare.gov, isn't finished. So she's in some blind email pouch somewhere uh, trying to cancel policy. It's a nightmare for people who've, who've gone on. So what we're going to see, I think the exchange rollout debacle 
is evidence that the government can't handle this, number one. But I think it's really the calm before the storm as people realize what they're getting once they're actually in the Obamacare exchanges and experiencing the limited choices that they're going to have. Right. And so when you look at stuff like that, you know, it's obvious to you and me what is going on. I mean, we're we're up to our neck in this day in, day out, taking care of patients, dealing with insurance or, or whatever, and we know what's going on. And I would say many, many physicians do, probably a majority of physicians really get it. So here's the deal. How do we communicate that to the people who are really being affected from the care receiving end of this whole equation? How do we get through Tune in next week for the answer on Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum as we conclude this interview with Dr. Hughes. Everything. 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 Everything going to be all right this morning.